this is Big Talk, Michael Glab here. I recently got the chance to sit down with one of those purely Bloomington characters, one of those people who make this town the unique place it is. He's a fellow named Jeffrey Morris. Jeffrey was one of the founders of WFHB and Firehouse Broadcasting. He and a revolving cast of folks kept the dream alive for nearly 20 years before this community radio station first went on the air. It can be said there'd be no WFHB, no community radio in Bloomington, without Jeffrey Morris. Jeffrey's story, in a lot of ways, is as good as a history of this town over the last half century or so, reaching back to his days as one of the people connected to the fabled ashram. For the next two weeks, let's take a trip back in time and find out about the music scene in Bloomington, the wild days and nights in this town, and the genesis story of our community radio station, WFHB. Now, here's my conversation with Jeffrey Morris. We're with Jeffrey Morris, also known, if you listen to the station and hear him (laughs) playing music, also known as Sundog. Jeffrey, welcome. Oh, thank you. Been here for a while. Oh, we were were just talking about it. There were founders, and we're going back longer than most of our listeners probably have even been alive. A group of people got together and started gabbing about this idea Uh of community radio. And we're talking about the 1970s. We're talking about the, the... I guess the Gerald Ford presidency, uh, <laughs> we're going that far back. I don't really remember who was president <laughs> at, at, at the time. Let me set this up a little bit. Please. Okay, so it's the spring of 75, and I was floating free. I had lived in the ashram for four years uh-huh. and then left and did a few things and briefly lived with a lady that I liked. And, and um, so I ended up, Moving into, um, well, the Jack Gilfoy, who was a jazz drummer of some note and um, in the state, and he started the first 16-track, 2-inch tape recording studio in the state, the first really active one. Here and in Bloomington? Here in Bloomington, okay. up on 17th Street, their little house that's up the hill. It's still there. There are buildings all around it, but at the time, it was just the house and a garage. Yeah. And Mark Hood, who is now a, a current member of the board and the treasurer, he had moved down from Interlochen, where he grew up. And I don't know if you know the Interlochen Arts Academy and summer course. camp. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Michigan. Yeah. I spent two summers there in the camp years ago in 61 and 62. But Mark had come down. He'd learn audio up there, and he became the chief engineer for Gilfoy's. Okay. There was a two-car garage, and he took half of it and kind of made it into a living space. Uh-huh. It, nothing too fancy, just, you know, table and chairs and a little loft with a mattress or two in it and uh, no plumbing. Uh-oh. <laughs> so, so we had to go into the studio to use the bathroom. We used to joke that we had a 16-track outhouse. <laughs> but... Somehow I connected with that, and Mark invited me to move in, and there we were. So I was living there. 
And I was helping some with the studio, not with quoting engineering, but I was already starting to do electrical contracting and and that kind of thing I'd started the year before. Which is what you still do today. Um, mostly retired. I don't yeah, do yeah. it. Oh, and so then some point in the spring of 75, maybe March or so, or, or maybe a little later, Mark and I started talking, and we'd heard of community radio stations in other places. So we thought, well, maybe we ought to try that. There, there was one of Madison, Wisconsin. There was, I think, Wart was already around. and So we were really kind of interested. The first thing I did, I mean, we started talking about this and thinking about it, and we're looking into it. I went over to the phone. We had a wall phone in the garage with a rotary dial. It was 1975. <laughs> I dialed long-distance information. I got the phone number for the FCC. I dialed the FCC, and a nice woman answered the phone. (laughs) And I told her I was interested in non-commercial FM stations, and she transferred me to two guys who were the engineers who actually dealt with those applications. That's a long-ago process. You can't talk to anybody in any government (laughs) thing anymore. It's all online or, you know, to actually talk to a human being is not very easy. And these guys were very informative, and they Xeroxed the appropriate part of the rules and regs and forms and mailed them to me without any charge. So that was initial. So Mark and I started talking about it, and we eventually started having meetings and invited a few other people in. Jim Mannion was one of the early people to get in on it. Richard Fish was one of the people who got in on it. A few other people around in the music scene at the time. and that That was the core of it. That was in the spring. In July of 75, we put on a benefit at the Bluebird. And, it's uh, only a couple of months after coming up with the idea. That's true. But what was going on at Guilfoy Sound at that time was um, Mark Bingham, Caroline Payton, Bob Lucas, and and others were involved. And Jack was real generous. In the evenings when there was no book in the studio, he let these people use the studio for free. And only his thought was just, if you start making money on this, then maybe I'll charge you some. <laughs> <laughs> that was the beginning of Barbecue Records. Now, Bob Lucas had already recorded an album, his first album, not in that building, but in Jack Gilfoy's garage, which was the first studio. Now, a, lot of, a number of local people, um, Peter Seves, Richard Blaustein, um, they were banjo, fiddle, guitar and creative people and they would get together and just jam at times and I often was around I didn't play but I was often around I have a credit on that album (laughs) it says Jeff Morris spiritual assistance oh boy oh boy and the truth is I brought the smoke (laughs) (laughs) I usually had a little bit you know and we won't go into that much this is you know this is way back Way, way back. Then Barbecue Records was forming, and Bob Lucas was involved, and Caroline Payton, her album, Intuition, and, you know, several albums were recorded at Jack's and, and put out. 
that. So there was this music scene. The origin of Barbecue Records and Mark Bingham and Caroline and all that was at Jack's at that time in 75, 76. Strangely enough, one day Mellencamp walked in the door, said he had a little money to do a demo, and recorded two or three tunes, took the recordings and left, and then a little while later he came back with Tony DeFry, who was his original producer, and um, recorded a few more tunes, which I don't think went on, didn't go on the first album, but that was the start of John Mellencamp's wow. crew. Right there while we started FHB. <laughs> and other people did significant recordings in there, too. The jazz scene enjoyed it quite a bit. Things were going on around here. All right, so here we are. We're talking. And, and then in July, somehow the Barbecue Records people, Caroline Payton, Mark Bingham, Peter Gold wasn't part of Barbecue Records, but he was here and he was studying music and playing interesting things. Bob Lucas, Bill Schwartz, who now goes for Willie, Bill and Bob grew up in Holland, Michigan, and, and they were buddies. So this whole thing kind of came together, and we did this benefit at the Bluebird, and uh, there is a recording of it, actually. We did reel-to-reel tape, and I think we made, like, we had them lined up out the door of the Bluebird, and people were coming in, and I think we made something like $700. That was money. That was a lot. Yeah. That was a lot. So I ended up opening a bank account, <laughs> putting the money in. And uh, we we just kept talking. And that went on and off a little bit. And through in 76, I went up to Alaska for a good bit of the year in the spring of 76. You hadn't dropped the idea, had No, you? not, not yeah. at all. Okay. We, we were talking about it. But we did find out relatively early. Channel 6 TV in Indianapolis. The audio for Channel 6 was like 87.4 or something. And the non-commercial band in FM is 88.1 to 91.9, the bottom 20 channels. So... If you were close by Channel 6, no problem, because they have a strong signal. But if you're in their grade B area, which uh-huh. we are, yeah, they could stop you from getting on the air. You're getting in our yeah. wavelength. Yeah, and I, it was one of the big corporations owned Channel 6. and But Mark and I and crew, we were, we were a little naive. I mean, this is 1975, 76. Cable TV was beginning to be a big thing. Everybody in town had cable TV at that point almost. So we thought, well, you know, Channel 6 is not going to worry about us because they're on the cable, right? We thought, yeah. But that turns out not to be true. But So we went around about it a bit. And I, like I said, I went to Alaska back in 76. And I was back here through the winter and didn't go back to Alaska to the almost summer of 77 and i got some interesting stories from there too but (laughs) (laughs) yeah and and um but so the conversation kept going and jim Mannion took the box with folders in it that was our whole information yeah and held on to it and there were a few meetings and i think maybe even mark and jim went to some conference or something but all that happened, but and then in this 
Oh, in the spring of 77, I'm trying to remember the date. Of the, I, formed, I think I formed the corporation in 77. In my, a nonprofit corporation. Yeah, I filed a uh, not-for-profit with the state. Yeah. I tried to put together an application. Guilfoy Sound is a house on the hillside, and above it was a nice hill. They're north of town with some clear area. And Jack had sold it to two guys who owned the bowling alley that was down on 7th Street <laughs> at the time. But I got a letter of intent from them that they would let us put up a tower there and, and you know, do the, the radio station. Build an actual broadcast tower. Well, that you have to if you're yeah, going yeah. there. But I got you know, a letter of intent so that we'd like to apply for this particular location and that. And so, okay, it was going on. And so I put this application together. And at the time, there were no computer yeah. databases. So what I had to do, what you have to do to make an application, you have to pick a spot on the earth, right. you know, longitude, latitude, an elevation, a tower height, and then what that height is above average terrain in 10 different directions. Wow. So I went to the geosurvey office at IU, and I bought, it's like 12 geosurvey quadrants. They're like, you know. Like maps. Yeah, they're pretty big. They're like 30 yeah. inches by two foot or something. So that I could form a map out of all of these that would take me out 10 miles, which is what it was supposed to, you're right. supposed to do. Your, and then you draw a line out in the various radiants, and then you get check the elevation and draw a graph of that elevation up and down through that 10 miles. This is real work. It was really hard. And I had a friend who worked at what was then um, Western Sun Printing, when there's uh -huh. still real printing presses. And yep. I had worked for them a bit. And they had a nice camera. So they were able to take pictures of these quadrants and make me 8x10s, which I put together into it, which, which I was going to send into file. So I did all this work and came up with a frequency. And, and the only database I had was going to the IU library and getting what was called the Broadcast Yearbook which is just a big book listing all the stations in the country. But it did give location and the technical stuff, height above average train and total yeah. what's called ERP, effective irradiated power. Uh, did uh, did you know about all this stuff before? I, or was it all brand new? No, it, I, I learned it as I went. Uh -huh, yeah, And I, I figured a lot of it out and didn't talk. Too many other people at that point. I mean, I did get the information from the FCC and found out what I had to do. So I put this whole application together huh. in 77. And the um, guys at the bowling alley copped out. <laughs> oh, no. I don't remember if they sold the land. I think they actually sold the land up there. Okay. And so that didn't happen. That never got filed. All that work. Oh, that worked. So, 77, <laughs> and then I go back up to Alaska and hanging out. I get back fairly late. Um, my, I didn't get back till, what, November, I think. 
Because I, I was working in a place called the Chena Hot Springs, which was a natural hot springs about 50 miles from Fairbanks. And huh. it had already been 20 below when, <laughs> when I left. Yikes. <laughs> but I got back and actually ended up getting together with the lady I met before I went that spring. It was now my wife of 40-some years, Alana. She invited me into her little apartment, but the, one of the first things I did was to file the 501c3. And again, you know, I'd like talk to somebody from the IRS, and they told me what I needed to do and what would qualify. And you know, when we're a C3, not a C4, and filed that and put it in, and that <laughs> that went through. Old so that, school stuff. Yeah. So here we are, you know. The community radio project, and um, we're a 501c3, and we got a little bank account with a little money, and I got, got a post office box. And I got a AT&T credit card yeah. because you then had to pay long-distance charges. It wasn't like it is today where the Internet's everywhere all the time. Right. right. So I was using a payphone in the back of the library. <laughs> So when I needed to call people and work on things, and you know, and I got talked to some consultant engineers a little bit, you know, and was was doing that kind of thing, and there we are. It's you know, seventy seven, seventy eight. We're trying to get it together. In nineteen eighty, I put together another application, um, and this one, the tower location was on the south end of town on Richard Fish's property. So I did this whole process again. It was still completely by hand and went through the, this the whole The 10 different and, directions. And, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, and the graphs and all, all that, and you know, plus all the corporate stuff that I had to just present to say who we are. And um, I actually filed that one. So that got filed. It goes into the FCC. A little time goes by, I get a letter back. It says, this don't work. <laughs> uh -oh. There's a conflict with um, WFLP, I think it's, free, it's a free public library in Louisville. WFPL. FPL, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, they, now remember I'm using the broadcast yearbook for my database. Yeah. So I'd seen them, but the yearbook was six, eight months out of date. And in that period of time, they had raised their power uh -huh. from 10,000 watts to 50,000 watts. So now, That's as far as you can go. So, yeah. And so, but that meant that my contours crossed theirs. So there was an interference problem. So the FCC threw it out. Now, Channel 6 would have stopped it anyway. But, okay. So this so is. So you not, were in trouble from two ends. <laughs> That got rejected, and everybody left. Everybody quit except me. Jim Mannion left town. He moved back to where was near his parents, and Mark Hood kind of wandered off from it too. Nobody else was thinking about it anymore at all. In 1980, everybody's gone. Were you right? depressed about this or um, discouraged? Yes and no. Uh -huh. I kept the mailbox. Yeah. I had $300 in the bank account at that point. Right. And kept it alive and kept thinking about it and checking into this and that. 
So at this point, it's just me. And one day, I think it might have been about 82 or 83, I was sitting in front of the uh, Runcible Spoon with a friend named Don Carlton. Uh-huh. And at that period of time, there were a group of us that often met in the afternoons, kind of happy hour at the outside of the Spoon. I was sitting there with Don, and I was talking about the radio station and what we were going to do and what was going in the air and all this. And he looked at me, and he said, you know, I think you're the only one who thinks this is going to happen. And it occurred to me that at that given moment, that might have been true. <laughs> you kept it alive. I kept it alive. I kept the, the P.O. box. and um, So... Everybody's gone. And then about, I don't know, in 1984, Brian Carney moves to town. Now, Brian Carney had lived up in Madison, Wisconsin, where they had a good radio station. He ran into Jim Mannion. Jim Mannion, who was back in town then, told him to go find me. And so he came out to my house out in the woods south of town, and we sat at my kitchen table and talked about this, and we started putting it back together. The engineering is one thing, but the fundraising and that kind of organization, that's where Brian really was helping. You know, that was his thing, and he ended up has had a career as a development person. For, yeah. yeah. Um, so we, we talked about it, and it was just the two of us, and we eventually got a couple people involved but he started making appointments with people to just go talk about this and the we talked to a number of different people at one point he made an appointment with herman wells yeah okay the president of iu yeah yeah he wasn't president at that time i don't think i think he was just called the chancellor or something okay but he had been, and he's an extremely notable character with yeah. with uh, So he and I are talking to Herman Wells and explaining what we'd like to do. He says, what about Dick Bishop's people? And Dick Bishop used to be part of FIU. And we told him, and I forget how we, we found this out by talking to people who were in the radio, what was then called radio and TV department. Yes. We told them that the only actual on-air experience that you get in four years in a bachelor's degree at radio and TV is you and a couple other people produce one 10-minute newscast, which was true at the time. I mean, it's no longer radio and TV. It's the media school. The media school. But that really got his attention. Yeah. And the educational part of FHB has always been a big thing. So Herman, for one, uh, introduced us to Cecil Waldron, who was the granddaughter of John Waldron, uh-huh. who Brian started courting and seeing, and um, she ended up giving a lot of support to us. And um he, he just generally supported what we did and, and helped us in a few directions. And Brian and I just started going around talking to people. At one point, we actually went to Washington, D.C. and visited senators and congressmen. We didn't get to talk to them. We got to talk to their staff. Oh, sure. 
But we had gone around and, you know, just kind of get support. Um, and actually, I, sh I should back up a little bit. So here we are. Brian Carney's here. We have support from Herman Wells. Cecil Waldron is interested in us. And she eventually gives us $100,000. And she, That's money. And she also gives, I think it was just 50 more, to buy the fire station here. We're jumping ahead because yeah. this is the second space. Yeah. But go ahead, yeah. Well, um, not really. Well, the transmitter building. Yeah. But, but okay, so we've had a rejected application in 1980. Brian Carney's come. We've made some really good contacts, and we know that there's a Channel Six problem. Still, right? And at this point, we we're starting to get. I don't think I got in contact with the consultant engineers yet. But at this point, I could get a, you know, a, a bifold data matrix print from a place called Data World, which listed all the stations with all the con, you know, all yeah. the technical stuff. So I go through this thing and I find a channel that is not in what's called the table of allocations. I'm searching through and looking for a frequency that's unoccupied uh -huh. and not close, you know, on the, you know, on the earth, not interfering with anybody and frequency-wise not and I come up with 95.1. We decide that we're going to do what's called a petition for rulemaking, which is you apply to the FCC to have this channel added to the table of allocations. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. But once it gets added, then it's open for anybody to apply for it. Okay. So we, we apply for this, and I'm getting come back to this because when we made all these appointments, it was partly and went to Washington to get support for this. And I could show you our comments. It's like almost half-inch thick of letters of support and all kinds of things. I mean, we, we have a lot of support for this petition rulemaking. Well, there was in the area of, over those early years somebody named Bruce Quinn who had a pirate radio station for a little while on and off here and there. He was just kind of a crazy character and I never really met him. He saw our application and he filed too and kind of, you know, wanted to get it for him for himself. So that went around and around. You know, it eventually did get put into the table of allocations. And it was fought over and paid for, and it's now the Christian station, 95-1, that's, uh, I think, I'm still on Studio East in the town. I forget what their call letters are. But the truth is, the, the point is, we didn't get it. Join us next week for part two of our conversation with Jeffrey Morris, Bloomington character and founder of WFHB Firehouse Broadcasting. Mm -hmm.